With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello to Gigabit Nation Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience for taking time to be with us today. Our mission, as always, is to provide information to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get faster, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in America. Uh, when I wrote my first book on community broadband, uh, one of the more interesting interviews I had was with the president of a consulting firm who worked with communities to help them with their wireless planning. And he said the first thing you have to do is determine who owns the vertical assets or access to those assets, meaning the telephone poles, street lights, roof, uh, building rooftops. And he explained that you know people from local government will sit in the meeting and will tell you that without a doubt the city owns those assets. But what he found was many times that when you get into the project, all of a sudden everybody comes to figure out that, in fact, the city doesn't own those assets, and it becomes a real uh, fire drill trying to sort out who owns what and to keep the project moving forward. And when we look at the issue of right-of-way in, in the broader sense and when we're talking about broadband, we're, we're talking about something very, very similar, that, that people need to understand uh, who owns it, who owns access to it. Are there uh, roadblocks to a community actually getting to that asset if they're planning a broadband network? So today we're going to delve into this area of right-of-way, who owns it, how can you change a bad situation if you do find uh, roadblocks uh, to your access to these assets. And our guest today is Rita Hall, who has spent a number of years uh, helping communities get their act together when it comes to improving telecom services in their communities. And Rita, thank you for being on our show today. Craig, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to being with you. So right away is complex. I mean, we actually tackled this subject, uh, oh, I don't know, right before uh, December uh, when we had uh, Galen Updike from the state of Arizona talking about right away there. And I wanted to come back to this discussion uh, because right away is very important, but it is probably one of those things that people don't understand what it is and why it's important and why uh, we need to be paying a little more attention to that. So we're going to just jump in here, and I'm going to first ask you to give uh, kind of an overview of what is right of way in the context of a community that wants to build or somehow encourage or bring in better broadband for their community? Okay, well, laws governing right-of-way, you know, are different for every state, of course. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see if I can't take your, audi- your audience back or take us back to the beginning. Let's assume we know nothing about telecommunications other than we've been using a phone and we've been using cable for a long time and we think we're experts. Um, 
I can't barely manage my remote, so I can tell you that that's not an easy <laughs> <laughs> that's not an easy thing in and of itself. But mm-hmm. when I first started in the early '80s, I was one of the first cable administrators appointed in the United States, and was appointed because of my background in uh, I have a master's in theater. I had experience working in uh, recreation department and I had government regulatory experience, and so they thought it would be a good match for cable because everybody thought cable was the entertainment business. And you can imagine how shocking it was to discover that instead it was a huge utility and that that three huge four-inch binder thick franchise agreement and another corresponding three inches thick of proposal materials that had gone into the company even winning the franchise in the first place or the legal binding documents for how they were going to use over 850 miles of land that the city owned. And those 850 miles of land that the city owned are the utility corridors. Uh, Granted, the discussion you mentioned in the beginning about who owns what is typically the city does not own the utility poles in it. Typically, whoever's pole it is owns it, whether it's the electric company or the phone company. Uh, and since the phone company was there first, cable attaches um, to those. And generally speaking, um, those negotiations have to work out. Government has to work out how you're going to get these various companies to have access to these poles. But so what is right-of-way? Well, to get into, I'd say right-of-way may very well be one of the most valuable assets uh, that we have as a country. Mm-hmm. And just think about if you were going to con- if you were going to conduct a war, and you were going to uh, if you were in a war zone situation, the first thing you'd want to do is take out the other guy's communications. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about communications and its carriage on landlines is it has to go by every home or business that might want to connect to it. I mean, it's not obligatory that you connect to it, but in order for me to get to wherever. My, you know, past my neighbor's house to wherever I wanted to talk, I'd have to go in front of my neighbor's house because that wireline communication is a continuous thing. It can't be cut, stopped, and started. It has to go. And that's why anything that has to be delivered, it's a transportation system. Sewers, if you're taking away sewage, water, if you're delivering water, electric, cable or telecommunications, gas, steam lines, those sorts of things go into what have become the utility corridors. So the rights of way, generally speaking, not in every case, but pretty often are uh, the five or the ten feet of land on each side of every road in the country. And we have four million miles of roads in this country. So if I'm a phone company, I can't start a business without using that right of way land to either put the, my, my infrastructure in underground or put it in above ground. Built into the whole right-of-way problem right away from the very beginning is how many wires can you put on a telephone pole because a utility pole has restrictions. You know, uh, communications have to be three feet away from uh, electric and then between a foot between each communications carrier. And then the pole has a limitation to how high it, be, it becomes so it doesn't interfere with air traffic. And under, underground you have the same thing. The right-of-way has already got a lot of stuff in it, water, sewer, uh, other communications carriers, long-distance carriers, other people that have gone into the right-of-way. So the whole thing is is finite, how much right-of-way is there. 
and the whole thing is essential to get from here to there. And so that's what right-of-way typically is. I like to say 10 feet of land on either side, and the reason it's important is that you couldn't buy services that you wanted uh, without access to, without having the company go buy the publicly owned land that's in front of your house. You may not know it's publicly owned, but it is. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't think that's valuable, imagine if you were a company and you needed to get easements, negotiate, pay for, and acquire easements from every property owner in a city in order for you to put your infrastructure on it. And you couldn't do it. So when the city negotiates with a cable company or, or the phone company to come in to use public right-of-way, um, what they're negotiating is how much are you going to pay if I give you access to this? Because once I put you in that right-of-way, chances are nobody else is going to fit in there. And besides, you only need one wire. You don't need more than one carrier, so it becomes a natural monopoly. So it's not a good guy, bad guy thing. It's a, it's a, the right of way issues that we have today are a reason of the evolution of technology and the convergence of technology. The evolution being we've gone from telegraph to telephone to coaxial cable and now fiber optics um, that were used for long distance carriage. And the, and the convergence is that we have one technology now, fiber optics, that can carry Internet, phone, and cable, voice, video, data, and Internet services as if they were interchangeable, uh, as if it doesn't matter what they are. The technology is neutral and it carries everything at light speeds and it has huge capacity. So what fiber brought brings to the table today is if you put fiber in the 4 million miles of right-of-way and it's government-owned, you will be bringing an interstate to every home in the country and every business in the country. And if you could operate it the way we operate our road system so that everybody had unlimited access to the highest speed fiber Internet, like you go out your door and get on your car and drive your road, if you could pick up your um, cell phone or your computer or whatever, and go out and use the Internet whenever you wanted to, as much of it as you wanted to, you would then have competition. Now, how do we get there? Well, <laughs> that's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> Therein lies the... Uh, Therein lies the rub, the yes. Mm-hmm. Well, let me give so you an old, if you don't mind, let me let me just give you an old story that helped me get to this point, because early on sure. I discovered that the city of Cincinnati... Was low, used to be the queen city of the West. It was the largest city west of the East Coast in the early 1800s. It, it's an old city. And um, its huge commerce was based on the fact that it was on the Ohio River. And it's directly across from Kentucky on the Ohio River. And it was part of the canal systems. And it was just major, major transport to the, to the Mississippi River back when everything was carried on water. And when automobiles came in and trucks came in and the new businesses, the new transporting industries that were the most affluent were the barge and ferry boat owners that ferried services and, and, and people across the river from Kentucky to Ohio. 
So what happened when they decided they were going to build a bridge? And they actually built the John Roebling Bridge, which was the precursor to the Brooklyn Bridge, in Cincinnati in the 1800s. It caused a huge brouhaha. The streets in Cincinnati came and, and lined up directly across from the streets in Kentucky. And at those, those were the points, the docks or the, the ports where the barges and the people unloaded so that you went down to the riverfront and got on your ferry or put your stuff on a barge. And that's commerce, and that's how commerce and people moved. Well, these guys, when they heard about a bridge that you could walk across or drive your cart across or even drive your car across, got upset and said, we're going to put us out of business. As a matter of fact, you can well ask, are there any ferry boats and barges transferring stuff from one side of, you know, from Cincinnati to Kentucky? I'd have to say no, other than a few, you know, maybe one passenger ferry up the road somewhere. But other than that, they don't exist anymore because everybody takes bridges. Well, they weren't able to block the building of the bridge, but they got a law passed at the state level that said that anybody who built a bridge over the Ohio had to build it between two streets instead of contiguous and connecting two streets. So instead of coming down a street and getting on the bridge and going across the river, you stood there and looked across mud on either side of of your of you and tried to figure out how you were going to take your cart over to where the bridge actually was, which was halfway between, say, Vine and Walnut on the same side of the river. And they did that to block commerce. And this isn't the only town they did it. They did it into it a lot. What's the end result of that? We have spent in this particular area, both states on both sides of the river, millions and millions and millions of dollars building ramps to connect streets to bridges over the years. It was just a major, major economically expensive thing to do. And I submit to you that's where we are today. We need to put fiber into every home. Uh, And for those who think wireless is the answer, there is no such thing as wireless without a landline. And in order for you to have a highest speed wireless communications, the towers or the antenna need to be connected via the the highest level, you know, the largest capacity um, uh, infrastructure out there, which is fiber optics. So if we put fiber optics in, we're going to be good for the next century. Right. Getting from getting to there is where your dilemma around the right-of-way is. So, yeah, local governments own the right-of-way, but some phone companies have a lease in perpetuity to use uh, the right-of-way, and we only have two carriers that you can buy Internet from, which is phone and cable companies, and they've pretty well blocked anybody else from competing with them. So they were basically, the phone, telephone and cable company are basically the ferry and barge owners <laughs> of the 1800s, mm-hmm. trying to keep us from building the fiber that we need uh, to function in a, in a 21st century economy. I guess the most logical question that comes to mind immediately is how do we in situa- how do communities in situations where the larger companies have at least from a telephone perspective have right away dominance how do we count- how do we counter that well um in an ideal world. Um, I mean, that's a really good question. Let me go back to what is happening. Uh, there are the only 
the the most the, the largest development of putting in fiber optic networks that are municipally owned are um, happening in small jurisdictions in every one of them, including Chattanooga, which I you may have talked about on some 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 of your guests have talked about are own their own electric utility plant. So because they own their own electric utility, they can finance, they own the poles, or they can go ahead and put in underground conduits that they own. And even in those instances, they're going to get, a, depending on the size of the town, a huge battle where the uh, incumbent phone or cable company is going to sue them and try and stop them from doing it. Um, that's just, we're very litigious. Uh, I would say that the, with the industry is, doing everything it can to to maintain its position. It is very well positioned politically and financially to wage that fight. So anyway, that's uh there are only two out there. What can you do? What can you do in this day and age? Let's look at an ideal world. If we were living in an ideal world, we'd have to say, okay, how do we do this? We've got all these guys, we've got all of these fights. How can we what what can we do to bridge that? And I'd say one of the things is to um, leave the incumbents alone, um, grandfather them. But when you start to move utilities on underground, either say you, you know say you have to move your, your utilities underground like everybody else does; those laws are already in effect. Or um, you know, or they can start leasing uh, capacity from the municipality. But that, of course, means that they're competing with other people, which a lot other other corporations, which a lot of times they don't want to do. Um, that's one of the things we can do. Um, the other thing is, we why do we need municipally? And you know, obviously, we need municipally owned networks. I like to use this example. Can you imagine what would have happened when we built when the automobiles came into being? if we said to the Ford Motor Company, hey, look, why don't you build the roads at the same time? Well, if you were the Ford Motor Company, you would say, oh, great, I'll build the roads, and I'm going to kind of give a tax, give a, give a break. I'm going to charge people to, you know, to use the roads, because obviously, how am I going to pay for it? I need to charge people to use the roads. And what I'll do is I'll charge people who buy Fords less than I'll charge other people. And when roads get really crowded, um, I'll let the Ford, I'll let anybody with a Ford product use the road first and keep everybody else off. That is what being in business is all about, and that isn't bad. It's just a reality. So what does that mean? That means that anybody that needs to go to market to buy something or sell something or just even communicate in this day and age and they need that as an it's a gateway or an access to the market that needs to be government or publicly owned. So if you want to look for a model for um what should uh it look like? What should public ownership look like? I submit that it should look more like the way we operate our highway system as opposed to anything else. And the reason you find the big push for municipal ownership is local governments already own and maintain 75% of the 4 million mile highway system. States maintain and own 20% of it, and the feds own and maintain 5% of it. That last 5% is usually in the Native American reservation land that is 
federally owned land. So the model for municipal ownership is based on the fact that it has to go on in the public right-of-way. We already know how to own how 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 to manage that right away. As a matter of fact, we replace it every twenty years because it wears out. And so we have a mechanism that could serve as a way to start putting municipally owned uh fiber networks in the right of way. And then we need to go one step further and bury everything. Because as we just saw with Sandy and with all the storms that we've had in the past few years, we can't afford to use our taxpayer FEMA dollars to restore antique, obsolete, archaic phone and cable lines. Why are we doing that? Every every time we have a storm and we have to go in and fix that, put, put that electric and fiber underground. Why both electric and fiber? Because you can't have a fiber optic network without electric power, and you can't have smart electric grids without fiber optic networks to manage them. So they're interdependent and the new technology has to go underground in the future. That's in an ideal world now. You know, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of calls and people say, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and this this one touches a lot of hot buttons and so forth. But let's back this up a little bit and talk about a couple of key things. So uh, community, well, no, first off, we have 4 million miles of right-of-way, yet we have Road. um, uh, roads, right, but but the, my my point being is that the public owns this. Now it seems like through legislation or local franchise agreements or whatever that that communities in various parts of the country have ceded that right or have in essence neutered their own right by however they structure these franchise agreements. Is that basically what we're uh, talking about? Is that people? No, no, no. They when the franchises were originally signed. They were, it was done in an ideal kind of a world because the only places that had cable were small towns who couldn't receive over-the-air broadcast signals, and they were just receiving the three networks. Right. And the small mom-and-pop cable companies. Those original franchises, because people did not know what they were getting into, were originally intended to only be 15-year uh, franchises, at which point, uh, local governments, we were all going to sit back and say, gee, what happened with the technology and what should we do with it, do with it in the future? But uh, And in the five years, from about 80 to, from about 81 to 86, the entire country was wired with coaxial cable. They built 850 miles of cable in Cincinnati in three years. It was a phenomenal undertaking. So for even though it sounds overwhelming and terrifically expensive and not doable, government does a lot of huge things, and it it is very well equipped to manage its land. It's been doing it, public lands, it's been doing it for years. So if you want to talk probably about what might maybe the most successful public-private partnership in history, it was the wiring of the nation with coaxial cable in five years and all of the huge new industry development that happened as a result of that public-private partnership. Now, at that time, local governments didn't own it, but what they did was they gave franchise and they collected 
what was supposed to have been and would have been fair compensation for use of that land if the operators had paid it. But they started right away. Um, our franchise was signed in 81, and in 84, I mean, the eight, was it the 86 Cable Act by 1986, before we had even had more than a few subscribers signed up, the industry went to Washington and claimed local governments were greedy and they needed to be relieved of any um, uh, conditions where local governments could set rates. So they immediately started to erode what was in those franchise agreements. So they basically used their, the power of, their, of the money to go to Washington, and most people don't, didn't know what anybody was talking about. It was a really elite group of people, maybe one, you know, one or two cable people for every jurisdiction, major jurisdiction in the country, and a lot of the smaller ones didn't even have anybody who even knew anything about what this cable franchising was involved with. So, you know, it was the laws just from from 86 to 92 to 96 to I don't know how many FCC hearings over time, uh, you saw the erosion of that compensation. So I don't know of any local governments that willingly uh, just threw up their hands and said, oh, we can't handle this. As a matter of fact, I used to say in my, I say in my, in my workshops today, the uh, industry used to come to city council meetings and say, listen, this is so complicated. You guys really don't need to worry your heads about it. We're good, responsible corporate citizens. We've got a lot of jobs here that we're providing in your town. So let us handle this for you. And everybody said, oh, yeah, well, that you know, I don't want to be bothered with one more thing. That sounds, you know, we got a franchise. We're protected. Let's let them do it. And what I said to the local officials, what, say to local governing officials is, I can drive from one side of the country to the other, and I'm not routed in the pouring down rain, in the snow. I'm not at night. I'm not routed over cliffs. I'm not routed into, you know, ponds. I can stay in a hotel. I can drink the water. I can stay in a motel. I can eat I can eat in a, in a restaurant. I'm not poisoned. I don't get cholera. I, You know, all of these things, the sewage goes somewhere, the water is, is there and available for us. All of these things are provided about local by local government. And we're talking about water treatment, waste treatment, sanitation, picking up trash, health departments, managing public health initiatives. What is it about telecommunications that you can't handle? It's a bunch of boxes and wires. So because we tend to be intimidated, like I am, by all my remotes, it's easy to see how um, we seeded maybe a lot of the uh, – uh, the political arguments in the early years because it was difficult to predict where we were going to go. Do you see what I'm saying? It wasn't anybody just mm-hmm. gave it up. Uh, probably the only person, the only, the, we know, I, we can talk about Google. Google is wonderful that Kansas City is going to get fiber finally. But instead of having a competition where you said, geez, providing, making money in Kansas City and selling services in Kansas City is a is a real um, opportunity, business opportunity, and what are you going to uh, provide to our community for giving you this monopoly in our town? They instead turned it around and made it into a national competition to see which jurisdictions would give them the most, give away as many pu- much public assets as possible. So it's almost a a, a 
it, 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 it's turned almost into a kind of a looting of public assets uh, as opposed to uh, maximizing uh, for the public interest and for business interests. How, what do we need to do to get the right infrastructure in here so that we can create these new jobs? Um, if, if I were a, a, a little, if I were, you know, these teens, you know, your your young people who really know technology. Well, if they come up with some app that needs a gigabit of internet bidirectional speed to function, they can't even test the app. In most app, most cases, you couldn't even if you even if money were no object, you couldn't even buy it because that capacity isn't even available in the community. So what would have been the the garage development that happened in Silicon Valley where everybody went out and and created all these new businesses, they can't even happen because the little entrepreneurs who don't have a whole lot of money can't test their apps because there's not enough capacity. It's as as if you designed a high-speed Porsche and the only place you could go test it is on a dirt road. You'd never be able to know what the – okay? Mm Mm-hmm. And so for technology, having having any Internet that's less than a gigabit bi-directional speeds uh, and expandable indefinitely by just adding, you know, different boxes on the other end of the, of the fiber line, by having anything less than that, you are condemning us to two-lane road technology. I mean, it's you're, on the Internet. You don't even know that you can't go there. You just can't go there. Right. So now if I'm fast forward and and sort of take, you know, enlightened community in 2013, we have a bunch of communities that are, you know, exploring ways of going forward. They're having needs assessments done and all the rest of it. Um, First off, how do you, as a community, identify whether or not your right-of-way assets are available to you? In other words, if they haven't been seeded over via, you know, franchise agreements or some sort of weird legislation or whatever, how do you first find that out? You know, can I, like, okay, for example, uh, I'm working on a project in Iowa, Tumwa, Iowa, and I send a note to the uh, city manager and a couple of other people, you know, who owns the right of way was the first question. And second, um, you know, are there any are there any franchise agreements or other rules in place that could impede the city being able to move forward uh on a on a broadband network, right? So to me that was the first step. I mean, is that sort of universally the first thing you need to do is to uh, you know, find people in various parts of government and say, Look, what's our deal? What do, what do we have and what do we don't have? Well, I think if you go to your public works department, they'll tell you. Okay. As far as I know, the public works department owns the owns and maintains the utility corridors in any given jurisdiction. I I heard your uh, the gentleman in Arizona and that sort the the issues that um, that the state had out there. But um, the the fact of the matter is that if local government is building it and is building the network for the public interest, then it can use that land. It is only when uh, when it's perceived as being um, or is, uh, is thought of as um, 
being used for the individual f- financial gain of one organiz- of one corporation or group of individuals. But if it's for the public good, typically right-of-ways are available. And those are legal questions that you don't need to cross. You need I I, I don't even I you wouldn't need to start there. You need to start with demonstrating educating the community on why it is that they need or would want to have um high-speed internet in their community. And typically right. the reason the small towns do it uh and are the first ones to do it, they're the ones that have usually been a single industry company and that company closes and exports those jobs overseas and now you have a you know 60 or 70% of the workforce unemployed and you have to do something drastic and those small towns have then cobbled together sometimes with state help federal help if they own an electric utility floating you know floating bonds and built Networks would allow them to bring high-speed internet, and then attract, be able to attract businesses who, will now when they're looking, not only where are you located, um, as as opposed to proximity, if you're shipping a product to an interstate, um, but they're also looking to, do you have high-speed internet, and how much does it cost? Because okay. one of the one of the most prohibitive costs for local for for private businesses is buying high-speed Internet. It is wildly expensive. Um, I work with a small business who um, is an is an overseas company and has offices in other countries, in uh, uh, Finland, in Italy, in Germany, and, uh, and also in Miami, Florida, as well as in Cincinnati. And they were paying... They located their office in one of the uh, communities that was kind of cherry-picked to have that the phone company decided it was going to offer high-speed Internet because it was an affluent community. So they located in a little business district in an affluent community so that they could buy high-speed Internet. And they were spending uh, something like um, $650, $700 a month to buy high-speed Internet that when more than one person in the office got off of it because it, the phone company was limiting how much capacity that they would bring into the building, the other guys had to get offline so that they could send CAD drawings or whatever it was that they were wanted to send. Meanwhile, when these guys, the, the employees that lived in Finland for $35 a month were getting something like 75 megabits bidirectional Internet. They were bought, getting more internet for seventy-five dollars a month in their homes, and this business was able to buy in its business in, in the states. Mm-hmm. So it was almost a ten, you know, it was uh, it was it was ten times more expensive for less capacity, as opposed to if you were located in another country. That was that's what we mean. That's what is meant when you hear that we are fifteenth, seventeenth, twenty-first amongst developed nations in deploying broadband. We just don't have that capacity available. And it doesn't make, there is no financial, there is no business model that any private company can justify, including the phone and cable companies, that can justify building out fiber because it's a hugely expensive undertaking 
because you have to send give it to everybody and not everybody can afford to pay uh pay to have a pay down a financial pay down a return on investment that's why government builds infrastructure that's why government builds roads because government then has a tax base to support that road system however it collects it whether it's However, it collects the payment for that. It is based on what does it cost to maintain this road, replace it, and expand it if it needs to be expanded over a period of time. And there's no room in there for profit or a payback in 10 years or 5 years or 15 years or whatever payback model you wanted to use. There's no payback time because it is a a continuously uh, needing to be maintained and uh, built and sustained and expanded operation because it is market access. It's how you get to market. Right. When you're no longer carrying your corn on your, your you know, whatever you're selling on your head and walking to the village square and you need communications to coordinate that, well, then you need a a public road to drive it on and a public communication system to coordinate the purchase and sale of whatever it is that you're providing or so right. that your customers can get to work it. But I'm, but I'm still, I guess I'm still struggling with the question of, um, you know, in the cases where the community clearly owns the right of way and there's a, there's, you know, if, if there's a clear path, that's fine. But what, are, what do you do in these places where incumbents have put up roadblocks? You know, you talked about the fact that the first, uh, provider that goes on a telephone pole has an advantage because you can only put but so many wires on that pole, and they, they I think they, there's like a hierarchy of even where on the pole certain lines will go, and so if the incumbent has taken that position, <laughs> take that pole position, if you will, uh, first. What is the community's effort? Is that if in that scenario, then they're going to have to use like ground right-of-way, they're going to have to build, you know, dig up streets and, and, and use that right-of-way? I mean, what's their... What are well, they the can't. They won't, well, they won't do that. They won't do that because they can't afford. It isn't a matter of... You're not going to get a private company to come in and put up another pole, number one. No, probably not going to happen, right? Uh, well, because it's just not physically... It's not physically... Well, no, no, I mean, I it doesn't that, make right. sense. I mean, how many poles are you going to put along the side of the road? I mean, are we just going to – and so secondly, then you get into are you going to put it underground and dig it up and put it underground? Well, if – let's, and let's assume it's already underground, as it is in many uh, – any new developments in this country. Uh, typically, um, local governments are requiring utilities to be located underground. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say it's already underground. Um and let's say they even were so progressive as they would say, uh, you have to um, uh, let your competitors use that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to go in alongside of it. So now you've got all the costs. You've decided you're going to go in underground right alongside the existing company that's in there, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if I was the cable or phone company, and this is what usually happens uh, when a competitor shows up and they haven't been able to keep them out legally 
uh, or through passing legislations or by going to the state and taking away local authority to control who goes in the right-of-way or all that sort of thing. But let's assume it's all moved forward to this point, and you've got some brave uh, private sector soul who wants to do a good deed and, and start his own business and realize the American dream. That cable company is now going to slash to practically nothing the fees for the services that you're going to be selling, whether it's cable or phone or both, or the triple plays or whatever you want to call them. So here is this new guy starting this new company, and he needs to get a return on his investment, right? And he's all of a sudden can't get any customers because why would I pay $100 a month for something that the phone company is now letting me buy for $20 a month and maybe even giving me a two-year contract for $20 a month? Well, I'm going to do that. So in two years, I'm out of business, and the phone company then triples my rates because there's no competition, there's nothing I can do about it, or the the cable company does that, or they agree maybe unofficially to do that, and where are we? We don't have any alternative infrastructure. So when you are up against that that battle, it's almost needing to move to a starting a movement that the right thing to do is for government at the new Jobs Act should be relocating all electric and uh, fiber telecom underground over the next 20 years and then leasing all that capacity out to anybody who wants to compete and be in business to provide that service. Any of your Internet service providers, government just owns the network and makes it available on a first-come, first-served basis to any business person that wants to come into business. So you basically have free free internet running down the front of your house, but you're going to have to still buy, like you have to buy a cell phone, or like you have to buy a car to drive on the road, you know, or a truck, or you got to take a bus or whatever. You have to find some way to travel, or you walk. But um, the way we have a mechanism for um, providing unlimited access, not free, but unlimited access to the highway. If we think of the fiber electric uh, internet highway, that's something we have, to, we have to, we ought to be able to access as much as we want, anytime we want. The way we get in our cars and use roads anytime we want, whenever we want, then the mechanisms for how we govern that will fall into place. But we need to change the paradigm. And it's not because I'm saying that there's something wrong with the phone or the cable companies or any of the guys who are currently in business. It's just just like the barge and, and, and ferry boat owners didn't want to build that bridge and pass the law that says it's got to be over there where nobody can use it. Eventually, we overcame that. The big problem we have now is technology is growing and moving so fast that we can't afford to wait for that shakedown, we're falling. To, we're just rapidly falling. We're in an explosion of technological growth. Where it used to be, you could wait two years, or you know, say, gee, your, your computer needs to be upgraded every three years, and it was every year and a half. You know, now it's practically like a car. When you get it off, you know, you get your computer and you get it home, and it's geez, it's practically not workable right now because I've got all this new stuff that's coming along. It's happening that new applications that can be used. Mm-hmm. And the thing that confuses the other thing that confuses it uh, a lot, Craig, is that 
the general public is confused about what is an application and what's a transportation system. The phone company is not. The phone lines and the cable lines are not applications. They're highways. Okay, just like you can't, you can have a road that's a gravel road, mm-hmm. um, and we don't know how it's paved. We don't know what what you have to do to get it from gravel to something else. Uh, we just didn't know that we go out there and somebody is handling that. That's how that highway, that fiber electric internet highway, has to be that transparent, that easy to use. And then we all know we got to go buy a car or buy, uh, you know, a, an RV or buy a truck if we're at a business and we're transporting something. We find out what it is we need to do to get on that road. But that road is out there, and we can use it. So the real, right. real advantage of this new technology is the fact that if we can just get that road there. Now, the question you were asking about, gee, what can we do? I call, I, I say it's we're kind of like where Eisenhower was before he built the interstate. I never heard of Eisenhower saying, geez, let's ask everybody if they think we need an interstate. I mean, can you imagine? People wouldn't even know what he was talking about. A lot of people didn't even, you know, you know, it was like, I don't know. If, I, if it means i got to pay more taxes, no. You know, I, I'm not going to build an interstate. But Eisenhower went, to, when basically at the end of the war, he came back and says, wow, I just saw the Autobahn in Germany. That was phenomenal. I'm going to build that in the U.S. because we ought to be able to transport our troops and goods across country from one side to the other. We could never do that. This country is so big without an interstate. And that's how he built the interstate. Right. And I think he built it in about, I think it was about 25 years. I looked it up the other day. I can't remember the exact amount of time. It was. Well, we don't have 25 years. So we can't keep going around asking. I you know I, I talk to my friends all the time who know I'm you know such an advocate for this and say, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Do you think we ought to have fiber, you know, fiber, internet, electric, underground network to every home? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, what, you know what, what's that going to cost me? Right. But then does that you can't, that's not a for, question you, you can't ask. Right. But, but, does it, but does what you're describing call for the local governments, in essence, reasserting uh, control of the right-of-ways. In other words, if you've got a situation Local governments where, have uh, control of the... I don't know where you're getting this, Craig. Maybe you're in a unique situation in the city that you're in, but they already control their right-of-way. I can guarantee you the phone company is not coming and maintaining the street. Somebody's no, 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 maintaining okay. that street. You see what I, I mean? I so they so own right. it. Right. But you also... So that's to, not an issue. No. Yes, but we're coming back to... Um, the, this this thing where cable companies own or telephone companies own access to the to the to the poles, right? So if I'm in an environment where that is the case, you know that that whole scenario where you talked about a company coming in, a small company coming in, you know, is at a disadvantage because the incumbent is already in that infrastructure and they can slash price and they can do whatever they want. But all that is predicated on the fact that the the incumbent is in that right-of-way space, and the new guy, new person, new business doesn't have the same leverage. 
And I guess that's what I'm really was, was trying to get to. There is the yes, the public owns the right of way, but then there is sort of this de facto situation where, you know, as you mentioned, the locals have ceded the the rights to it, or they've ceded not in in technically, but they have in practice basically said, well, here you take care of this, you run this, you you know, you put yourself wherever you're going to put it. And if we don't get any other competitors, well, that's fine because you guys now have you're in the catbird seat. You know, it seems um, like there's a there's a reality that yes, we the public own the right of way, but it seems like in practice we've we've given that up somewhere. That's well, the thing about we it, well, what's happened is people we have we have a public policy, and this is basically more for discussion. I'm not claiming to have any answers i'm just trying to put the policy issues out there mm-hmm. that right. require uh, that require our discussion i'm not saying i have any answers uh about this craig it's just it's obvious we've reached a tipping point where we have to do something right um, and i agree i agree wholeheartedly uh, so, so so that's so basically i want to make sure that i'm not coming you know coming across or being perceived to say hey here's the answer but we have a thing going on uh, in this country right now, and I, it's probably been that's always gone on for years, that is exploited by the private sector telecom operators, and that's lets you all fight. So that, that lets you all fight is let's pit local government, let's pit state governments against local governments, and vice versa, and federal government against state governments, and because. We've got this big fight going on. They're so distracted they can't figure out <laughs> what it is that they they should be fighting about, or what you know, mm-hmm. or whether the fight's worth having even. Um, right. Back most of everything on the books, all the stuff, all the regulations, all the laws on the books are based on old technology. Are based on twisted pair copper phone lines bringing you your voice telephone services cable coaxial lines and and some data on the phone lines but not not a lot and then when the coaxial cable came in that had greater capacity and so they were able to bring you video and eventually when digital came in then you started to see some uh uh data gr- greater data on phone lines but meanwhile there's a whole bunch of laws that have been in effect for a long time because it took a long time for tele- telephone to have developed and then cable was quicker uh you know if telephone took you know i don't know 70 some years and cable took you know 30 or 40 some years and now we have this convergence of internet digital and fiber and that's already been going on for about 15 years um we, we know it, it goes faster and faster and faster Fighting with each other is fighting about the old rules and who gets what. And let, let, let's let's look at what happened in cable franchising. Back in cable franchising, which was a highly contentious local level fight, where they were giving away local rights of way, which were extremely valuable after years of the phone company successfully keeping, or the broadcast industry, or a bunch of these guys successfully keeping cable out of the business. You had franchising, which happened at the local level, which means that there were almost, I forget how many thousands of jurisdictions granted franchises in that short period of time. And the reason why they did that was because satellites 
came into being, and they had satellite programs, and they had packages that they could sell. And so your first big cable operators were the guys that had these huge libraries of movies and things that they could show. And and Ted Turner was a, a big guy who came in with the CNN News thing, and he he lost thirty seven half million dollars a year for five years trying just just so he could be first with twenty four hour news. So that was kind of the quick history of what was going on back then. But you had to lobby thousands of elected representatives in thousands of jurisdictions to win a cable franchise. Well, right. Recently, they discovered that, wow, when when those franchises started coming up again, they thought, you know what would be really easier? There's only 50 states, and there'd only have to be maybe, you know, 100 people. So instead of having thousands and thousands of local legislators that I need to lobby, I can cut my expenses by moving this whole franchising process up to the state level, and then I only have to lobby, you know, couple thousand people and win a cable franchise. But what happens in the process? Well, the state isn't really in the business of dealing with day-in, day-out cable complaints that are happening on individual streets in all those municipalities within the state's jurisdiction. And so as a result, you saw this tremendous erosion of consumer protection, of rate regulation, of all kinds of stuff you know, happen. Now, They've moved the whole agenda up to, geez, this is this is this is getting bad because now these local governments are building these fiber networks, and we don't want any fiber in here because there's a law that says if I build fiber, I got to let my competitors use it at what it costs me to do it. Um, let me just get a state law passed here that says local governments can't build their networks at all. Now, the fact that local governments are the largest, a local jurisdiction the public sector anchor institutions, the library, schools, government operations of any type. The thing that makes us a developed nation, every community uses more telecommunications in any given community than any other entity, than any other entity. Just think about what it costs to have E911 response services, mm-hmm. not to mention everything else. So when you say to a local government, that you cannot build this network and reduce your costs and bring this new technology to your town. And you still have to provide communication services, and guess what? You have to buy it from me. I'm the only provider that can provide this to you. You have done done nothing but created this huge, spiraling, out-of-control cost for providing, you know, for, for... for provi- for public sector services and what they have to do to you know to buy communications so that they can function, what they're spending on that, you've created this whole environment where you've got this built-in captive audience of where they have nowhere else to go, and uh, that's what we're up against. So we're mm-hmm. asking where this is the same question about um, how do we get here. We got here because that's where the technology was. How do we get from where we want to go, from where we are to where we need to go? I personally don't see any way out of having the federal government build the infrastructure. And I think if you factored in what we spend for FEMA restoration along with 
uh, and you built them in concert with the replacement of uh, while you're digging up the road to replace it and repair it, over the next 15 years, you could move everything underground, and you would you would the federal that would be a federal jobs act to transition to that. I mean, that's what I see as a way to get there. And then everybody can everybody can actually have competition. That doesn't mean you're buying your services from government. It means that everybody's using the same highway to bring you services, and that you're using to get to them to buy services. That's all it means. Mm-hmm. So when the industry says you're competing with me, now in a lot of small towns, what local governments have done because they're having to use a model to pay down bonds, and they are in a in a in a, in a, in a environment that's using existing regulations, they are indeed offering Internet and cable and phone services right alongside their their incumbent telephone and cable companies. And so they, in that, in that respect, they could be con, construed as competing. But typically, in those environments, they're not going. Those those incumbents aren't aren't providing uh, those services over fiber optics. Right, and there we get into this whole issue about uh, they are they are killing possibilities of people of communities that could be doing better, uh, even though those incumbents don't want to. Do it themselves. It's like, no, we're not going to do it, but you can't do it either, so to heck with you. And that's. Well, see, the incumbents can't afford to do it. They really can't afford to do it themselves. The stock market is not going to let them do that. The stock market, their investors aren't going to buy into this huge thing without some guarantees of profitability. And and guarantees of profitability is you want government to guarantee you can have a monopoly forever. And built into the whole notion of monopoly is you're going to cost, you know, the people who can afford to pay more by service and the other ones are left out in the cold. Or taxpayers right. subsidize them, which costs taxpayers more. So no matter how you strike it, we have to move just as we moved from uh, transporting people on water to transporting people on trains to transporting, you know, goods and people and services in cars and, and trucks. This new technology for the 21st century, we're still going to use all those old ways of transporting, but we need to transition from transporting information over old phone and cable lines to on on fiber optics lines because it's a world economy. And it's only fiber that can serve that that economy. So that's where we are. And um, other than educating your community on it. Mm I was going to ask you, okay, we've got about two minutes left. Um, if we're at this tipping point, then what is it that the local folks can do to push us over that? Is it that they band together and create state legislation, changes the landscape? Do they call their congressperson? I mean, you know, I mean, I realize it's a big question for two minutes, but what, what, what can we do to get past this tipping point in our favor? Well, you know, I was, I was just thinking, I, 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 somehow I think I expected Somebody saying, what can I do? And I've been taken by this social media where you start a petition. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, I was wondering what would happen if somebody said, you know, we want, you know, we want underground fiber electric internet networks, fiber, we want underground fiber internet electric networks. What would that look like? And the, re- the reason that would be hard to start 
is because I think are difficult to start is because we have to educate anybody, everybody on what it, what they're asking for and why. Right. Uh, and I think that it's an educational piece. Um, uh, and I think young people get it a lot. Say maybe more than say my you know my age group, and I don't know what your age group is, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my I, uh, young people just seem to get it, and I think if you could say, you know, we need, wouldn't you, you know, I'm kind of like, wouldn't you, um, wouldn't it be great if um, you could have unlimited access to Internet anytime, day or night, and no matter who was in the house, no matter who was using what, you didn't have to turn anything off, you didn't have to have glitchy whatever net, you know, streaming for your Netflix or whatever, that you can right. use light-speed Internet as much as you want to at no monthly cost, just like you don't pay to use your road every time you get on it. Now, obviously, it's paid for somewhere, but we as citizens don't stop and say, geez, how much should I pay for this road that's in front of my house? We just use it. Imagine using as many apps as you want at the same time you want, anytime, anywhere. Imagine always having electricity and communications pretty much all the time the way they do in Europe, no matter what the weather was or what the storms were because everything was underground and, for the most part, pretty well protected. That's where we need to go. And if people can understand that that's possible, that we have all the technology in place to make that possible, then I think we can get there. So energy independence, smart electric grids, green energy jobs, high-tech jobs, creative uh, uh, the creative uh, um, community or the innovative community creating new businesses and jobs, all those things need this high-speed fiber electric underground grid. And it's very, very doable. And believe me, it's a lot cheaper than putting up poles are putting stuff up on poles because we have a cost up front and you put it underground and it reduces your replacement, your maintenance costs forever. And it eliminates an awful lot of the huge amount of money we have to spend on FEMA to restore communities. And now that we've got you know, pretty much climate change issues to deal with as it affects the weather and the kind of storms and, and issues that we're having, Putting the putting utilities underground is is a must, and they've had them underground in Europe for years. So that's what I'm thinking: is tell young people, hey, you can have unlimited access, you can have unlimited internet at light speeds, you can use as many apps as you want to, anytime, anywhere, and you can always pretty much rely on electric and communications, no matter what happens with the storms in your town. I think those are the three keys to starting a social movement to let's get fiber. Let's get fiber and electric and Internet underground. Gotcha. Well, we are pretty much at the end of our show, and uh, this has been And there were no calls. <laughs> and there were no, there was, you know, there was chat room activity, but, you know, I don't I don't get a lot of folks calling in, which I have to figure out how to, how to inspire them. Inspire some more of that, but uh, but in general, though, I think this was all very good information, and I appreciate your time. I appreciate the interview, and you know we'll be back again, and, and you know probably talk about uh, right away uh, some more in the future. Okay, so well, thank you, Craig. You and our audience, it's 
still here. Thank you very much for being here today, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.